Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. Our vision is to extend and establish the influence of the kingdom of God by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Guess which verse we're going to start with. Ah, so nobody gets an Easter egg. Thanks for nothing, Siobhan. We're going to start John 3, 16, and we'll read from 16 through to 19. It says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We can see that God's intention from the beginning of sending Jesus was you and me coming into His life. The Bible speaks about everlasting life. The word that it uses is the word zoe. It's a Greek word, and it means the God kind of life. It's not just life as you and I know it that is temporal, that is passing, that is, the Bible speaks of fleeting. One day we're here and the wind blows and the next day we're gone. That's our earthly life. But the life of God is an eternal life. It is an overcoming life. It is an undefeated life. Amen? It goes on and on, unending. And so what Jesus has come to do is give us the God kind of life, the zoe. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That verse really spoke to me in light of what God has been speaking to us about. You know, we come into, into Easter weekend, and we come into, Easter weekend has met us in the middle of a flow of what God has been saying to us. And it doesn't mean we just now suddenly pause and we change tack for one weekend and then we get back to where we were. I think Easter weekend really epitomizes the flow and what it is that God has been saying to us about a call and a drawback to His heart. And this scripture really spoke powerful, powerfully to me because it said, the light came into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. It's not that they couldn't see the light. It's that they chose darkness instead. That's, that's an incredible thing when you think of what comes just before that, that God gave His only Son to bring you into life, to bring you into light. And yet the world, as having seen the light, still chooses darkness. There have been a few things that have really been rolling around in my heart this week, and I actually want to talk to you about those things, and I'll use some scripture just now, but I really want to have more of a heart-to-heart with you this morning than a preach to you. Siobhan, that little slide you made for Friday night, could you pop that up again? Is that doable? Yes, Friday night? Because you died for me? There we go, sound guy. He's on it. There's something that's been rolling around in my heart all week, and that is this, this phrase. And God gave it to me in one quiet time. I'm sure somebody's probably said it before. I don't know. So I haven't put my name there just in case I offend somebody. Credit is irrelevant. The point is, point, is, is what it's about. It says, because you died for me, I will live for you. I think the cross of Jesus Christ brings us, it it is a confrontation point. It's always going to confront us in one way or another. It's going to confront us in terms of our sin. But for me, the real confrontation of the cross is the price that somebody was willing to pay for me. The price you pay for something is the value you attribute to that thing. Amen? You all know when you've been ripped off, right? 
Nobody likes being ripped off, but everybody likes a good deal. You feel like you're getting more for your money. Amen? But when I think of the cross, what, I, what confronts me is the fact that, that not just anybody, anybody would be awesome. <laughs> Somebody lays down his life to save me. That's, that's pretty awesome. But when God himself sends his son to die for me, that's a whole nother level. That is what sets Christianity apart from any other kind of journey of enlightenment. It's that God rendered the heavens to come down in the form of a man to pay the price that you and I were guilty of, the debt that you and I were guilty of. That's incredible to me. And it demands some kind of a response. What I really believe God is talking to us about in this time and this season is what our response is to the word. What is our response to the light? What is our response to the cross? Surely our response should be because you died for me. The very least I could do is everything I have for you. Because you died for me, I will live for you. Not just I will die for you, but I will live for you. I will give my every waking moment to saying thank you. I will give my every waking moment and all my energy and all my resources to saying, God, you are worthy and you are deserving of all that I have because you died for me. You know what? If Jesus never did another thing for us, if God never did, in fact, he's not going to because he said it's finished. I'm finished. But if God never does another thing for you and I, would he not still be worthy of everything we are and all that we have? But yet we find that in the world we're living in, it's very clear to see that men, although the light has shone, prefer the darkness. And the problem with it is, folks, in many settings and in many ways, that same spirit has crept sneakily into the church. And we often find ourselves drawing near, drawing away from the light and into the darkness, back into shame that Jesus came to deliver us from. Back into solitude and isolation because we don't want to do things God's way or anybody else's way. We want to do things our way. And we draw away from the light. That instead of that openness that says, Jesus, because you died for me, I will live for you. In other words, it's about you. We begin to withdraw a little bit and say, it's about you and a little bit of me. And a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And that little bit, as you know, it grows and it snowballs. Because you died for me, Lord, I can live for you, and I will live for you. I will live to pursue you. I will live to know you and to make you known. The question is that we have to ask ourselves, and and it's a poignant one, how much has the reality of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, the love of Christ, impacted our lives? When something truly impacts you, it changes you. This is true both of good experiences and bad experiences. Those people who have suffered trauma need to go through trauma counseling. Why? Because that event has so changed them that they need help to move on and they move beyond that. Has the love of Christ so touched and changed us that our pursuits have changed and we've moved on from them? Have you been touched from God in such a deep way that you... Not, not with sort of a mental assent, but with all sincerity deep down in your heart, can say, God, I love you so much 
that I just want so-and-so who does not know you to know what I know about you. In other words, has the love of God become so real to us that we actually hurt and grieve for the lives of those who don't know him? I mean, when I look at Ariel, I'm using you as an example here. Does my heart, I'm sure you love Jesus, does my heart break at the fact that this man's soul doesn't know? Never, listen to me. Never mind hell. That's a whole nother conversation. Never mind eternal judgment. But just the fact that he's not tasted the love that has so changed and impacted me. That that has been an item of guilt on his whole life and, and a symbol of everything that he has done wrong rather than the incredible love that was poured out on that cross. Has the love of Jesus so transformed my life that my way of thinking is, with my friends and with my family, I can't just sit idly by and not share the love of Jesus Christ. It is just so good, I can't keep it to myself. You know, I spoke, we've been talking about repentance and as you know, Pastor Ken was here last week, and it's great. He, he spoke to me about something after the message. It's great when you have those father figures in your life that can help you along the way. And he said, Michael, you need to be just careful of one thing when you, when you preach repentance. I said, okay. He said, you must be careful that you don't preach repentance as a transactional thing rather than a relational thing. Here's the transactional thing. I am doing this. I now need to repent and stop doing those things, and I now need to focus on doing these things. There's a transaction that takes place. I give that, and I take this, and it's, I now, all that is about is works. I now stop doing bad things, naughty boy, and start doing good things. Ah. He says, when repentance is transactional, it becomes law, and there's no love in law. There's no life in law. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He says, but when repentance is relational, we hit the mark every time. Where I turn from my pursuits, whether that pursuit is a person, an attitude, a thing, an idol, whatever it may be, but instead of just turning from that and and trying to do something different without any grace in it, I turn from something and I turn to someone. And therein lies a big difference. And as he said that to me, I realized, you know what, there's a lot of, it may be a, a subtle thing, but there's a lot of power and there's a lot of wisdom in what he shared. Because when I turn to pursue Jesus, the attitudes of my heart begin to change. And it's the attitudes and motives of my heart that lead me to do what I do. Amen? And so it's, it's about that turning from the darkness and recognizing the light and saying, I will choose the light. I will choose to give up my thing to pursue him and his kingdom and his righteousness. You see, folks, let's be honest. The motive of our pursuits is often tainted or perverted through our own deception. Amen? Not because we will always for it to be so, but because we live in a fallen world, because we have grown up in a system that has ways of thinking and a value system that is different from that of the, king of God, the kingdom of God. And these become entrenched in who we are, and, and they work their way into the way we do worship. You know, when, when you come to God, it's not just about learning new things. It's also about unlearning a lot of things. When I married my wife, I married into a new culture. There were a lot of things I had to learn. They weren't better or worse. The Greek culture is not better than my culture. Sorry. See? <laughs> Nor is my culture better than the Greek culture. They're just different. 
There are beautiful things in the Greek culture and there are beautiful things in mine. But I had to unlearn some of my things in order to embrace the others. I often use this as an example and it's, it's, it's just a poignant one. When I married Helen, you'd sit around the dinner table and she'd say, give me the rolls, potatoes. And you're like, please. What kind of family were you raised in? Don't you know the word please? It's good manners. Just say please. You're welcome to the potatoes. Just be polite. Of course, in the Greek culture, it's very different, especially among family. If you're saying, please, will you do this? Please, will you do that? What do you want? Why are you being so nice to me? <laughs> it's just different. I looked at that and that's very strange. But the point is this. In our pursuit of Jesus, in our pursuit of God, even there's some little things in our motives and our motivations that says, Jesus, I want to pursue you. And it's amazing, anyone who's been a Christian and a, and a true pursuer of Christ for a long time will, will, will attest to this, that as you pursue Jesus with a sincere heart, he has an incredible way in his loving kindness of revealing to you the perversions in your sincerity. Jesus, I'm pursuing you with a pure heart, please meet this need. Jesus, I'm pursuing you with a pure heart, please would you do this for me? Please change this situation. And my motive is, in my heart, pure, I want Jesus. But at the same time, Jesus, I also want you to do this and that and that. And here's my list, and please. Now, does God love meeting our needs and healing us and moving mountains for us? Yes, he does. Absolutely. But are we pursuing him for what he does, or are we just pursuing him for who he is, for that love that reached down and has already done more than we could ever, ever repay? I was ministering to the, the webinar last week, and I said something that has just been rolling around and around and around and around in my heart all week, and I just can't, can't get past it. I was sharing on, we've been, we've, on, on the webinar for the, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about identity and our role in growing the kingdom and, and the, 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 the person of Christ in me, the hope of glory that inside every single one of us is is Jesus, and he's just waiting to be, he's just waiting to burst out wherever we go and bring life and healing and love. But I was talking about pursuing him, and I said something, and as I said it, it struck me, and it's just, as I said, it's been with me all week. I said, surely I don't need to sit here and convince you that Jesus is worth pursuing. And I carried on with the message. But those words have stuck with me all week because I thought to myself, how much time do pastors spend behind pulpits trying to convince people that the God they profess to love and serve is worth pursuing? What an indictment. Surely our love for God is, we, we, we love Him and we pursue Him because we know He is worth pursuing. And when we've lost sight of that fact, what is the realization we need to have? That the state of our hearts is not in a good place. Well, our hearts have grown so cold because we would rather be doing our thing than pursuing Jesus. Where somebody needs to come and light the fire again in our hearts to remind us that God is worth pursuing. Folks, if we are not absorbed, if our lives and our devotion is not absorbed in pursuing Him, surely there's a problem. Would you agree with me? And I... I stand before you recognizing that that problem has been and often is present in me. The desire is often lacking. 
Why is it that we need to be motivated to pursue the most incredible, wonderful thing, person, not thing, person, ever? Is that because our idea of him is warped? Is that because of fear? Or per- it's, it's, it's perversion of the heart. It's that work that Jesus did, but something else has come into it. I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of John. Well, we're still in John, and we're going to look at chapter 6. And we're going to read quite a lengthy portion, because I think there's something really powerful in this portion of Scripture. John chapter 6. We're talking about this pursuit of Jesus. And we're going to start from verse 25, but I'll give you sort of the rundown up to then. Jesus has fed the 5,000. That's the 5,000 men. So this incredible miracle of provision and multiplication. And the Bible actually says that people were going to take him by force to make him king. I mean, after this, this was pretty awesome. They were going to take him and make him king. Because that's the Messiah that they had in their minds. And because of that, Jesus went up to the mountain alone, and the disciples got in their boat, and they started sailing over the waters to Capernaum. And this is where Jesus walked on the water to his disciples. When they recognized him, Jesus stepped into the boat, and the boat was translocated in an instant to Capernaum. It's a pretty awesome passage of Scripture if you're looking for a little bit of supernatural flair. And we see later on that Jesus, uh, that people followed in their own boats, and they also came to Capernaum. So there was a pursuit of Jesus there, right? The people were coming after him. How is it that Jesus had to feed 5,000 if more than 5,000 weren't following him? So there was a great excitement around this man. There was a great... I mean, if you think of the time and the place, a lot of people... You try to get 5,000 people together today. It's a feat. And so there, there it is. And we're going to pick it up from verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because... Uh, You seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal upon him. So let's pause there for a moment. Jesus, right at the outset of what I'm sharing with you here, starts contrasting different food. What is food? It is that which sustains us and that which satisfies us. Amen? Some people live for food to sustain them. Other people live for food to satisfy them. Guess which one I am. So Jesus is talking about the true food that can truly satisfy. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then? that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Now remember, this is after he's just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. This is just after he's translocated. I mean, there's some serious stuff that's going on, and they're still asking him, what work will you do to prove that you are the he, that you are the one? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. Again, we see that distinction. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. It gives great significance to what we're going to be doing in a few minutes with communion. But I said, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So we continue seeing the salvation theme coming through. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who fa whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I raise, will raise him up at the last day. It is written by the prophets, and they, shall be taught by the, uh, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, can you imagine just being there in a moment? What? Your flesh. You want us to eat your flesh. And you can understand how all of a sudden the stumbling block was put in front of the people. And I want you to carry on reading. We're going to carry on reading through this portion of Scripture. But it's, it's, Jesus is now starting to take this analogy. He can see that people are starting to get offended. People are starting to take umbrage with what he's saying. And instead of sort of lightening up a little bit or diverting a little bit or trying to explain, no, he gets more severe. He goes beyond an analogy and he says, no, 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 never mind just the bread of life. I am the bread. You eat my flesh. Hectic. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up that last day. This sounds like some cannibalistic, strange stuff. But we have to understand, Jesus is not meaning literally here. He's meaning symbly, symbolically. He was the bread of life, broken on the cross for you and for me. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Therefore, so in other words, because of this, Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? 
What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, and this is the culmination of what I'm really wanting to come to. He says, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and waited with him and walked with him no more. So many people went away from him. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Jesus was really secure in his ministry and his word. And this is the crux. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where shall we go? What else is there but you? You are the real thing. And I think that, that, that utterance came from a heart of such deep devotion that although I don't, I don't know that Peter fully understood what Jesus was trying to communicate. I don't know that he fully understood the significance of the body and the blood and the breaking and the eating and all of that. I don't think he understood the partaking of the very love and the life and the nature of Jesus Christ because that was still to come. But there was a devotion in his heart that said, Jesus, even though I don't understand all of this, I don't understand what's going on, I don't really understand what you're saying, where else will I go? There was a point in his life where every other bridge was burned. And Jesus was, the, was it. He was following Jesus no matter what. He was hooked. Lion and sinker, he was in. And there was no other alternative. There was no going back. There was no shrinking back. You know, Peter was an impulsive guy. He had moments of incredible revelation. And in the very next moment, God is saying to him, get behind me, Satan. So Peter was a highly impulsive guy, in and out, up and down. But there was a love and a loyalty in him which set his pursuit steady for the rest of his life. Folks, when I look at that cross and when I think about what Jesus did for you and for me, there's something about that that confronts us in our carnality, in the perversion or the, mix, the mixture of our, of our motives and our pursuits, where sometimes, so often, even that cross becomes about us and what we can get and what we have received from Jesus Christ. And we just leave it there instead of pushing on to embracing our own cross and living for Him. The Bible says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. In other words, get out of that darkness. Come into the light. Take up his his cross. What that means is face whatever. Come what may, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. This is the message of Easter, that Jesus gave us that victory, not just through his death, but through his resurrection. That we could have his life, his healing, his fullness, his grace, his Holy Spirit empowerment to live a life completely sold out and devoted to him. Isn't that a beautiful and a wonderful thing? Do we need to be convinced of this over and over and over again? Or is there something in our hearts that says, Jesus, you or nothing and nothing else. You are all. My all in all. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.